How's everybody doing? Awesome. See how long the air conditioning holds on out, right? Um, there's still some more seats here. If you're coming in at the door, you might come in here and sit on the floor because there'll be people even later than you, I'm sure. And there's really a seat here, too. Look at that. Come on. Y'all been having a good week? Yeah? I've heard really good uh, feedback about all the seminars my students are going to. Yeah, there you go. See? No problem. I won't kick you. I promise you. Check, 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 check. check. Alright. Okay, so did that first paper get around? I made a hundred copies of it. Almost. I see them. They're heading to the back. Where's the other pile? Still there. Okay. So just make sure they keep going to the back because... We'll just have to make sure it gets into the back. And now I'm going to start the second page as well. Did we also get the first page over here? If you miss the first page, you should probably get up and go get one. Because trying to get it to come back up here will be complicated. Now we've got we've got 100 copies, so I think we'll have enough. Why don't you grab two or three, if you would, of page one. And then y'all make sure you grab him one of these, Okay. So I'm actually giving you homework. I know you have uh, devotional things in the uh, in the little workbook, but this little the second thing I'm handing out I think will be helpful. I'll explain it at the end of the seminar, and it actually would be a good thing for you to do tomorrow during the devotional time to prepare you for part two of this seminar. So, if you, if you thought the work was done for the summer, you were wrong. Yeah. All right, I'm going to make sure all that stuff gets done. So, my name's Kevin Twitt. I'm the camp minister at Belmont. And uh, glad to be here. Uh, glad that they let me uh, do this seminar just once so that I could kind of get the music up and going. So, I'm grateful for that. Um, also a little more rested than normal because I don't have all my kids here, but it's it's sad too. So, pray for my little boy Cooper. He's my tenth grader who's taking his first AP exam today. So we all know what that means. Yeah, yeah I know world history. I don't know. Guidance counselor definitely led us astray and encouraging him to take AP world history. It's not been not been fun, but it'll be over after today, right? One way or the other. Um. So today we are going to talk about idolatry. And I'm glad you came here. I think idolatry is really one of the most important concepts to understand the Bible. And I do think in the last few years, there's been more talk about idolatry. If you've been around RUF for a while, you've probably heard your campus minister talk about it a little bit. I think it's such an important idea um, that until more recently had kind of been ignored by a lot of uh, evangelical Christians in particular. Um, one of the reasons that idolatry is such an important concept is I think it really gets at the root of what's wrong with us and why we act the way we act. Now there are, I think, some people that have, you know, have just focused, especially in kind of more conservative Christianity, just on what you do. You just need to, to act right. You just need to do the right things and not do the wrong things. And then at some level, people begin to realize, well, you know, you know, maybe the problem isn't just with how you act, maybe it's what you think. And maybe um, the real problem is your feelings uh, that are driving the way 
you act, and your feelings connected to what you believe. But in actuality, the Bible's teaching on idolatry shows us that both of those are superficial ways to look at what it means to be human, and to look at what is really wrong with us. That actually, the idea that you are one who loves, and one who is shaped by worship, is really the core insight the Bible has about what does it mean to be human. And so what the Bible would say is that both your feelings, or I would say thricely, your feelings, your thinking, and the way you act all flow out of what you're worshiping. And John Calvin uh, had a classic expression of this uh, in the 16th century when he said that the human heart is an idol factory. That we can't avoid worshiping something. Uh, another way that the Bible talks about this is talking about the fear of God. Uh, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes says, what is the purpose of man? And maybe some of you have been around Presbyterian circles and you've heard that, you know, what is the chief end of man? What is the goal? What is the purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That actually comes from the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which says, now, all has been heard, and what is the conclusion of the matter? What is the whole duty of mankind? And Ecclesiastes says, it's to fear God and to keep his commands. Now, fear God does not mean being afraid of God, but it means being properly in awe of God and who he is. Remembering and rejoicing in who he is. And to not do that is to worship something else. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Here's a couple uh, definitions from different Authors that I think are helpful. Dick Kies, who directs the Labrie, um, which is a ministry up outside of Boston. And, uh, it's actually a pretty cool place if you ever wanted to take a few weeks and go study kind of questions that you might have about Christianity or different ideas about how does this connect with Christianity and that. It's, it's a cool place. You can go, you kind of live there, um, you have teaching, but you also kind of work in the garden and get to kind of hang around and kind of live with the families up there. It's a really cool thing. Um, he says this, at the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world. If we do not want to face the face of God himself, it is majesty and holiness. And I think that last part is really critical there. Um, idolatry starts with a refusal to worship God, the true God. And I'm going to show you that in Romans 1 here in a minute. Uh, Tim Keller, he says this, actually kind of referencing de Tocqueville, uh, something that he said. Uh, Idolatry comes from taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your life upon it. And then there's another quote by Kai, so you can read that on your own. So here's the first point of what I want to say this morning. To be human is to be shaped by our loves. Now there are different um, people that have said different things about what does it mean to be human? Um, Aquinas, you know, famously uh, would sort of say the difference between humans and other, you know, animals, for instance, would be that we're rational. But St. Augustine argued that what it really means to be human is to be one who loves. And that this guy, James Smith, who's up at Calvin College, philosophy professor, um, develops that. And I think it's very helpful. He developed it first in a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And he just recently came out with an easier version of that um, book, which I'll reference. Uh, they've got some copies of it over there. What is it? Um, 
Anybody remember the name of it? No. I'll, I'll get the name of it. I'll bring a couple books tomorrow uh, as sort of ideas for you to, to look at. But the idea that we're shaped by our loves, we are made to worship. We are made to find something beautiful and compelling and worth living for. You can't turn your heart off in that way. Something will always be the center, the unifying center. Some passion, something is uh, is driving you. John Calvin again said that our hearts are idol factors. Now let's look at Romans chapter 1, because this is a classic passage. Um, Paul is kind of surveying mankind, and I, I think it's interesting, this isn't uh, just a description that's applicable to individuals, but even to whole cultures. And, and look at how he puts it here in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. It's on your outline there. For although they knew God, they did not know him as God. Sorry, they did not honor him as God, which means they didn't glorify him as God. They didn't give weight to the fact that he was God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, now let's unpack this a little bit, because he has some, some really helpful insights about humanity and about sin and about idolatry. First, look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, there's no third option there. They're either worshipping the creature, something that God has made, or they're worshipping God himself. There's no either or. This is why... You know, Christianity argues and Judaism argues that worship is at the core of who you are. You're worshiping something. Uh, the second thing to notice is that it all begins with the refusal to honor God and to be thankful. It's really interesting. Verse 21, they refuse to be thankful to God. In a lot of ways, idolatry is taking the things that God has made, whether it's things in the world like animals and birds and trees and volcanoes and whatnot, or even your own uh, abilities that you have, or ideologies that exist in this world because God has created this world the way he has, taking those things and disconnecting them from God. The, the lack of thankfulness comes from disconnecting the gifts from the giver. It, it, it means basically saying that these things exist sort of on their own, and therefore we can do with them what we want. But in actuality, God created all things. Psalm 19 says us, tells us, Psalm 19 says that the heavens are declaring God's praise. That everything that God made is stamped with meaning, and it's preaching at us. The creation doesn't just exist for us to appeal to it and say, look, there must be a God, because look at the creation. No, it's not passive. The creation is actually pushing on us, preaching on us. Whether you believe in Jesus or believe in God or not, you are living in a world filled with meaning because God created the world and it's proclaiming his glory. Okay, 
And if you don't receive that preaching with thankfulness, if you try to disconnect it, say, no, these things are not stamped with meaning, these things just are what they are, and I can do with them what I want, that is idolatry. And so this lack of thankfulness is, is at the core of idolatry in a lot of ways where it starts. Then where does it go from there? Well, the refusal to honor and glorify God. So it's a heart issue. Before, it's a thinking issue. You say, see how they say they refuse to honor and glorify God, and that leads to futile thinking. Futile thinking means thinking that doesn't go where it's supposed to go. It doesn't reach its conclusion the way it should. Um, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, some translations say meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless there at the beginning. Other translations, you know, King James says vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. I think actually a better translation, uh, that, that Hebrew word there, hevel, that's translating meaningless or vanity, is a word that really refers to vapor or breath. And the way it's used in Ecclesiastes, the sense is frustrating, frustrating. And Ecclesiastes goes on there in chapter 1 to talk about how, you know, the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is never filled up. The idea that things are kind of going, 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 but they never seem to reach their conclusion. That's the way life is after sin has come into the world. Things don't reach their conclusion. They're frustrating. They're futile. And Paul picks up on that in Romans 8. He says that the creation is frustrated. That's actually a reference to the book of Ecclesiastes. Life in this world is frustrating. And then Ecclesiastes says, man goes in search of many schemes. We try to find ways to control life so that it won't be frustrating. And it doesn't really work. The, the real conclusion, the real way we should live, as the end of Ecclesiastes I referenced earlier, is to fear God, honor Him, thank Him for His good gifts, and live dependent upon Him. That lack of thankfulness is a way of saying, I don't want to be a creature with a creator. I want to, I want to you know, dissolve that relationship. I want to be the one in control. And therefore, I'm going to look to things that are more controllable than God himself. So it's a refusal to be thankful, a refusal to honor and glorify God, which leads to futile thinking. Then the heart becomes darkened, and the way we live flows out of the heart. Let me say one more thing about the feudal thinking. I'll, I'll talk more about this tomorrow. We're going to look at Isaiah 44 in depth tomorrow. But uh, there is a place there where it says in Isaiah 44 that the one who's worshiping idols cannot look at the thing in his right hand and say, this is a lie. Uh, actually, the Bible regularly um, calls idols lies. They equate the two things. Lies, idols are lies. Lies are idols. Um, but here's the idea that you can't look at the thing in your right hand. And the right hand in the Bible is an image of strength and power. You, it's, you can't look at the thing that you're trusting to for power and see that it's a lie. Why? Well, Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, idols create delusional fields. One lie begets other lies. In other words, if you believe the lie that the meaning of life is to get everybody to like you, well, that's a lie, but if you put your hope in that lie and in your ability to get everybody to like you, well, then you begin to believe other lies. Like, if this person doesn't like me, life is over. If this group doesn't accept me, then life has no meaning. That one lie 
that you can't even see as a lie because it's your power, it's your strength, and you can't get any distance from it to see it for what it really is, creates other lies. And that's why we're going to talk about the ultimate hope for change is that God kind of breaks in and breaks this catch-22 because he needs to. We can't get out of idolatry just by understanding it. But we'll talk about that more. Tomorrow is more about where healing comes. Today is really, what is idolatry? Where does it come from? So, the refusal to honor and glorify God leads to this futile thinking, leads to these delusional fields. Then the heart becomes darkened, and the way we live, you see here in Romans 1, flows out of all this other stuff. Right? Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says it as well. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Ezekiel 14.3, similarly, God condemns the elders of Israel for setting up idols in their hearts. The reason I mention that is some people say, well, idols, those are like in the Old Testament. Like you've seen that, um, that gladiator movie, maybe, with Russell Crowe, and there's that scene where he like sets up his little, little idol statues and kind of prays to them. Um, and they're like, well, that's, you know, those old, you know, unsophisticated, primitive peoples had idols. But the Bible, even in the Old Testament, understands that idolatry is not just worshiping little statues. It's about the heart. Ezekiel says it's the idols in their hearts that are the issues. All right, a couple more things here. Uh, we make idols out of good things when we make them ultimate things. And, and this is very important. Again, uh, another helpful passage is 1 Timothy chapter 4. I remember being in seminary, and Jerem Bars asked a whole class of seminarians, about 100 of us, um, most of whom were studying to be pastors, what is the doctrine that the Apostle Paul calls a doctrine of demons? So one of the harshest criticisms he makes about any teaching in the whole New Testament. What is it that he calls a doctrine of demons? And not a single person in the room, remembered. But here it is. It's in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Man, that's pretty intense. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Some translations say seared as with a hot iron. Who forbid, here's the, here's the problem, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Did you catch that? The doctrine of demons is teaching people to not get married and to not eat certain foods. That's a doctrine of demons. That doesn't seem like such a big deal. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of Christians who would say, you're actually more holy if you're miserable and you don't eat certain foods and you don't get married. There's a lot of kind of quote-unquote Christian teaching, which isn't really Christian teaching, that says the more you deny yourself pleasure, the more holy you are. And Paul calls that a doctrine of demons. These good gifts that God created to be received with thanksgiving, these People, these hypocritical liars, are saying, no, they're bad things. So the first thing to see here is, we make idols out of good things. We make idols out of good things. These are things created to be received with thanksgiving. And there again you see that connection 
between thankfulness and the proper enjoyment of the things that God has made. And actually you get kind of an interesting insight here. The way to deal with idolatry is not just to say, well, this thing that I've made an idol is actually a bad thing. I remember one of my students years ago telling me that he'd broken up with his girlfriend because she'd become an idol in his life. I said, oh, really? What are you going to do when your wife becomes an idol? No, seriously. Like, that is a very superficial approach to spirituality that seems spiritual. I've idolized this thing, therefore I just need to say it's bad and cut it out of my life. No, what you need to do is be thankful for it, thankful for her, receive her as a gift of God, rather than something that exists for you to make you happy and to give you life. The way to deal with idolatry is not to call something God made as good, bad, that's shallow, and it's unbiblical, and actually it's a doctrine of demons. To do that. But people do that all the time. There's kind of this false spirituality, super spirituality we call it, that goes under the name of Christianity, but it's not Christianity. Christianity does not teach you to go around and look at the world and say, oh, those are all bad things because my heart can be sort of taken with them more than God. You know, somebody wrote a, um, a letter to C.S. Lewis one time, a, a little kid, concerned that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. <laughs> you ever worried about that? And um, C.S. Lewis replied, he said, it's not a problem. Because what you love in Aslan is Jesus coming through Aslan. Instead of saying, oh, I love this thing, therefore it must be bad. Because it's going to take away you know, my love for Jesus. That's not the biblical view. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, Paul talks about the same kind of thing. He says, since you've been delivered from the basic principles of this world, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Why do you submit yourselves to these things all over again? Such regulations with their appearance of wisdom and their harsh treatment of the body are useless for restraining sensual indulgence. That's Colossians 2 and 3. And that, I think, runs right in the face of what a lot of Christian teachers teach. A lot of people think, if these things can tempt your heart then the best way to deal with it is to say they're bad and not um, get into them. But I think in, instead, what the Bible would teach us is that the, the, the love for God puts all the other loves in their place. It doesn't mean that no other loves are good or beautiful. You know, when Adam uh, was in the garden, in a perfect relationship with God, God said it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. That's before sin entered into the world. That's when Adam had a perfect relationship with God. So a lot of people think the only thing you need is Jesus and his love. But no, God himself said that you've been made in such a way, not that the love of God shouldn't be the defining, dominant love, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't love other things that God has made, that you shouldn't enjoy other good things that God has made. And again, I just whenever I suspect that somebody feels like the more miserable they are, the more Christian they are. There's a big problem with their understanding of spirituality. But there are a lot of Christian groups, I think, that, that teach that, either explicitly or implicitly. So watch out for that. Um, we make idols out of good things. There's a powerful passage in Ezekiel chapter 16, where God talks about um, how we use the beauty that he's given us to entice other lovers. 
And I would say we use the gifts that God has given us as a basis for pride and excluding others. So what you need to understand about idolatry is you make idols out of good things. And the best gifts make the most powerful idols. That's why things like sex and relationships are such powerful idols. And the most powerful idols are the ones that work every once in a while. You know, uh, the people that run lotteries, the people that run casinos, they know very well how often someone needs to win to keep you hoping and to keep you spending money on it. They have to let people win every once in a while, or you wouldn't keep running after that thing and having your hope in that thing. And that's what happens. Like, ten, nine times out of ten, trying to be a people pleaser leaves you miserable and with no real friends. But every once in a while, it seems to work. And those are the hardest things to let go of, aren't they? Alright, the next point. Worship shapes and molds us. We become like what we worship. Psalm 115 says it well. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They're talking about these little statues. Uh, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And we're going to see in Isaiah 44 the same kind of thing. You think God is talking about the idol worship, the idols themselves, and then you realize, wait, there's a, sort of a, an ambiguity, a double entendre written into Isaiah 44. Is he talking about the ones who worship idols or about the idols themselves? Who lacks understanding? Well, obviously the idols, a little stone statue, doesn't have a brain. But neither do the people that worship little stone statues that they made with their own hands. So, we become like what we worship. A.W. Tozer said one of the best kind of diagnostic questions you can ask is, what do you think about when you're free to think about whatever you want? What do you do with your solitude? Woody Allen said one time, I believe in the power of distraction. I know a lot of people that are living that way. Believe in the power of distraction. I don't want solitude. I don't want to know what I'll think about when I don't have to think about something else. I like staying busy so I don't have to see what's really in my heart. I'm going to talk about some other diagnostic questions that can help us see um, idols and their work. But understand that. We become like what we worship. But now let me tell you this. Don't think that the only worship that's going on in your life takes place at church or at RUF or at summer conference. Um, this is what Jamie Smith is talking about in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, and in this, this new book that I'm going to bring and show you tomorrow. All of life, all of life is shaping your loves. Which is to say, everything in life is religious and is liturgical. That there are, there are kind of ideas of the good life that are being presented to you and held up before you all the time. And worship is always going on. Everything in our culture is making belief in the true God plausible or less plausible. And he has this, this brilliant um, description. He basically says, imagine you're like a, an alien sociologist from another planet, and you show up uh, in America, and you try to understand, you know, who are these people, what are they like, what matters to them. And imagine that you landed at a shopping mall. I know we don't have shopping malls as 
popular as we used to, but I still think you'll understand this. Says you might say, look, you know, think of the shopping mall as a religious experience and a place of religious worship, where you know people basically kind of park and they all stream towards this kind of central cathedral kind of building. It's very helpful when you first get in. There's all these kind of maps and descriptions telling you where all these little chapels are. You know, in the cathedrals in Europe, most of the worship actually took place in the little side chapels, not in the big open space that you'd see the pictures of. It's unbelievable. Most of the actual worship took place in those little side chapels. And that's what the shopping mall is like. Whatever it is you think you need to make you more beautiful, you can find it. And you can go, you can kind of pick it up, uh, pick it out, and then you can go to the counter and you can actually have this worship transaction where you pay something that's valuable to you and you get something that will make you more beautiful. And unlike most of the time you go to church, you actually walk away with something that promises to make you more beautiful and more desirable. Now that's what you're up against. If you go to worship once a week and you aren't ever in the Word or around Christian community that can help counteract the lies that fill your life, man, the university, he has a whole chapter where he talks about the university. What is the beautiful life that the university projects? What are the qualities what are the activities that really matter, that will make you successful, that will make you beautiful? Everything you're involved in is shaping your idea of the good life and shaping your loves. And that's why ideas are not enough to counteract that. That's why worship is so important. And I'll talk about that some more tomorrow. All right. Another point about idolatry. Um, this, this may be a, sort of a, an interesting idea you hadn't thought about before. Think of idolatry as rewriting God's meaning. Remember I said, Psalm 19, that the whole creation is declaring God's praise. That means that built into the creation is meaning. Meaning that is speaking, that is proclaiming. Um, maybe here's a good way to think about it. God created work. Why? God created work as a way for you to work the garden. But for you to take all of the God-glorifying potential that he's built into his world and to fashion and to shape and to work it, to, to make for beauty, to make for meaning. Whether you're involved in science, whether you're involved in music, or art, or commerce, or politics, you're using the stuff that God has built into his creation, and you're bringing it out and, and making the most of it. Uh, Bach does a lot with exploring the God-glorifying potential that God has built in the creation. Strings vibrate in a certain way. Um, drum skins vibrate in a certain way. Bells vibrate in a certain way. And you can put these things together in certain ways to make beautiful music. Now, he didn't explore all of the possibilities, because he didn't get into polyrhythms very much, right? And, and there's other kinds of musics, you know, even kind of African-American music, jazz and the blues, that sort of find notes that are in the cracks that aren't in the Western 12-tone system. There's more God-glorified potential than any one particular style of music has been able to bring out. And there's still more to come, okay? So that's what God created work for. But you know what we try to use work for? We try to use work to say, this is why I matter. We try to use work to say, this is how I can be self-sufficient 
so that I don't really need God anymore. Bart Simpson, uh, in one of the Simpson episodes, prays before a meal, and he says, Lord, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> now that, that's how a lot of people use work. Some of you grew up in families where that's how your parents used work. Right? And you've suffered the effects of that. Well, here's the thing. Idolatry is taking the stuff that God has stamped with meaning and trying to make it say something else. The thing is, God's meaning that's built into the creation keeps breaking through. So, my wife used to work at Vanderbilt Hospital as a nurse. And you might be interested to know that nobody dies at Vanderbilt Hospital. People expire. They're not allowed to use the word death. What a great example of trying to rewrite the meaning. Death in the world is evidence that everything is not right. But you see, even trying to to label it or to name it something differently is a way of trying to, to sort of say something different. Well, it's just natural. It's just a part of life. No, death is not a part of life. But all kinds of people try to name it that way. But the true meaning keeps breaking through. If you see a dead body, it's creepy. It's eerie. It's not part of life. It's not natural. Right? Idolatry is trying to rewrite God's meaning, but God's meaning keeps breaking through because it's built into the creation. And um, I I put down here an article, if you want to explore this some more, a guy named Ted Turnow uh, wrote an article about reflecting upon theological culture as meaningful. It's a website, great website, Ransom Fellowship, and um, you might track that down if you want. Um, all right, last thing, last point I want to make today is this connection between idolatry and fear. But before I do, are there any questions about that? The first kind of stuff that I want to do. Yeah. Um, the very beginning, you talked about you kind of, I guess, differentiate, um, you know, feeling, thought, and action. Yeah. And worship. Are you saying worship is like some of those things, or some separate fourth thing? Or I think it's underlying them all. Okay. I think what you think is connected to what you worship. I think what you feel is connected to what you worship, and I think the way you act is connected to what you worship. I think worship is beneath all of those things. I think that, you know, feelings and thinking are beneath your actions, but I think worship is beneath even those. Okay. Yeah. That, that love, sort of this sense of ultimate uh, center, is beneath everything, and is central to what means to be human. Uh, I guess this is about the, what you said about death yeah. not being natural. I mean, yeah. I guess all my life I've always kind of seen it that way. I mean, death, death is, a, is a second to the last stage and then eternity in either heaven or hell. So would you, yeah. would you say but that the, that's, death is just a road to... No, I wouldn't say it exactly that way. I would say that God created human beings not to die. And so the fact that death is in the world is a result of sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, that when sin you know, came into the world, death raved. Um, so the Bible makes the connection sin and death. So death is not natural. It's a great enemy. We rage against it. Uh, we weep, uh, but not as those without hope. So, yes, the Christian approach to death is there is a sense of joy that there is something better, but we don't let that overshadow the fact that this is not natural, this is not the way God made things to be. So it's kind of holding on to those 
two things. And I think that one of the ways that a lot of people in our world try to comfort themselves in the face of death is to say it's natural rather than looking at it squarely in the face and saying, no, things are not right with the world. I think most people feel that, and then I think they try to convince themselves that it is natural. Um, and I think sometimes Christians help them believe those wrong things, the way we talk about it sometimes. So it's important. Like Isaiah 5 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And just because we believe God is sovereign over all things, we need to be careful that we don't then think that everything is just good in disguise. Yeah, lament still has a place in Christianity. I guess that's the whole meaning of the wages of sin is death. Yeah, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's Romans 3, and then Paul develops it even more in in Romans chapter 5. So I might direct it to that. So another hand, I thought. Yeah, hey. Uh, So you mean like the death is not natural because it's the cause of the sin, so it's not natural? Right. The, The Bible would say that sin is in the world, or death is in the world because of sin. That God didn't create, God created human beings to live and enjoy them forever. And you know that both from what the Bible says about the creation and about the fall in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But you also know because Jesus, by living in a perfect relationship with God, um, death couldn't hold him. And he's resurrected to show that this is what the purpose and the goal of the and the ultimate um, plan for humanity was to live with God forever in glorified bodies that can't die. So, we could, we, we could talk more about lunch if you want um, about that. But yeah, that's what the Bible claims. And I know that that might be like, wait a sec, everything dies. You know, it's like the law of thermodynamics. Yes, but the, the, what the Bible says is that's not the right way to look at it or to come at it. You should instead think about what was God's um, purpose in creation. Just because something is universal doesn't mean that it was supposed to be that way. It may be that what went wrong affected everything. So that's what I'm saying. It would be a logical fallacy to say because it's universal, therefore it's the way it was supposed to be. It's also just as plausible that everything is screwed up. And that's what the Bible says, that everything has been affected by sin entering the world. Yeah. Okay, let me move on to this next thing. Idolatry and fear. Isaiah chapter 30. Is, uh, I have it on here, um, but we're going to look at that now. Tim Keller had a, had a great line I heard years ago. He says, if you pull up your idols by the roots, you'll find your fears clinging to them. And so what I want to um, help us to understand here is the connection between fear and idolatry. Isaiah chapter 30 is a great place to look at that. Uh, we'll look at the first three verses and then verses 15 through 18. All of it's good stuff. We just don't have time to look at the whole chapter. Um, so this is a point in Israel's history where uh, it's after they've been delivered from Egypt. Okay, um, They've been living with kings in the land for a while, but things aren't going so well. And now there's this other great threat. The two superpowers were Egypt down here and Assyria up here. And at this point, Assyria is on the march, and they're a threat, and they're coming towards Israel. And Israel is afraid for their very survival, and so what they do is they make an alliance with Egypt. Hey, we'll pay you if you will protect us from Assyria. That's the context for this passage. Okay, 
Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt turn to your humiliation. So that's, he's saying, oh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out on what's really going on. And actually, the next few verses that I didn't put in here says, basically, you're, you know, your, your oxen are already on the way with the tribute that you're paying, you know, to Egypt for this protection. Okay? And then look at verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. You said, We will flee upon swift steeds, right, fast horses, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall all flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits, or sometimes I should say, longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So again, the context, Assyria is this threat. Israel is afraid. And so Israel looks to Egypt rather than to God for protection. God says, trust me, I will protect you. God, you know, Israel says, well, Egypt's a little more tangible. They've got chariots. They've got horses. They've got iron. We're going to look to them. But notice that in looking to them, looking to Egypt, Israel is trusting Egypt, which is ironic since God delivered Israel from Egypt, from slavery, and now they've put themselves back under, you know, the, 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 the lordship of Egypt. So that's ironic and tragic. And also, I think, a, a pretty apt metaphor. So often God delivers us from things and then we run back to those things when we're afraid. Right? But not only that, notice what's really going on. Israel is really trusting in themselves. They're really trusting in their ability to get Egypt to take care of them. And when do you see that? Like, so often we think, well, yeah, I've got this idol, like we're victims. We think sometimes of our idols, our idolatry as victims. Well, I'm just a people pleaser. Well, no, you're committed to your ability to get people to like you, rather than trusting God. Right? You may think that you're a victim of just this kind of temperament that you have, without really connecting it to what am I doing? Where is my false worship? And that's what's going on here. Israel, in looking to Egypt, is actually looking to her own ability to get Egypt to do what they want. And this is what idolatry always does. Uh, idolatry is always saying, well, God promises to take care of me, but he doesn't really act on demand. He doesn't really do exactly what I tell him to do. But this thing over here is a lot more controllable. Maybe I would be better off putting my energy into this thing, because it just seems more secure, more reliable than God. But what happens, of course is when you put your trust in something other than God, out of fear, it actually brings more fear and vulnerability into your life. 
Look at the way that um, that Isaiah describes it. You said we're going to flee on horses. Oh yeah, you're going to flee. You said you're going to ride off on swift horses. You're going to ride off on swift horses, let me tell you. A thousand of you will flee at the sight of one. That's a powerful image of irrational fear. It doesn't make any sense for an army of a thousand to flee at the sight of one soldier. At the sight of five soldiers, you're all going to flee, and the only thing going to be left is the flagstaff. Like a signal on the mountain to say, well, we were here, but we're gone. You see that? And this is a powerful insight. If you find in your life irrational fear, responses to things that seem out of proportion to the threat, you can be pretty sure there's an idol behind that. If you wonder, why am I so touchy about this? Or why is this thing like the one thing that I just can't forgive? And it seems just out of proportion. Maybe you react in a stronger way than other people you know to this thing, to this kind of hurt. It's usually connected to idolatry. False trust brings exaggerated fear. There's a Christian counselor named Dan Allender whose books I highly recommend. Um, Bold Love, uh, another one called Cry of the Soul is really helpful in thinking about emotions. Um, he t- talks about this, how when, when you're getting to know somebody, and I tell you, as a cancer minister, I, I use this all the time. Um, getting to know somebody means getting to know their story, right? Because people reveal themselves, their character through their stories, but also what gets revealed through their story are, are, are pain, painful experiences. And Allender says that you can follow the trail of pain in someone's life. You can do this in your own life. And you will get to places where people have made core commitments to never let themselves be vulnerable in that way again. The real deep painful things in your story are connected to core commitments you've made. Well, that I am never going to let myself be hurt that way again. And that's where your idols congregate. This core trail of pain kinds of things. But again, you know, the irony is um, when you put so much kind of, you just put so much weight on not being hurt in that way again, like you get super touchy if anything gets close to that. So it actually ends up making you more vulnerable. I, I tell people in premarital counseling, if you understand somebody else's idols, you have a very powerful tool to manipulate them. You really do. And once you get married, you you know, you really have this ability to manipulate people. And that happens a lot. But you also have now insight. Where are the places of core fear where they regularly forget about the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel? And then how can I be able to get the truth of the gospel into that place of fear? That's what real encouragement is. Real encouragement is being able to speak the gospel truth into someone's fear. And the more specific you know their story, the more specific you understand their their fear, the more specifically you can apply, this is the thing they regularly forget. For some of you, you regularly forget that God is sovereign. Because you look back at your life and the pain you've experienced, and you're like, I don't seem like God was in control. Sure doesn't seem like he was. For others, you're like, no, the problem is he is sovereign. He just doesn't care about me. And that's the thing I struggle with, is to believe, you know, that he really is good. Oh, I believe he's powerful, I just don't believe he's good. 
Everybody in this room has certain things that they regularly struggle to believe about God. And part of idolatry is imagining God to be less than he is. Martin Luther said this. He said, before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the First Commandment. You know what the First Commandment is? To have no other gods. Worship no other gods. But when you, before you, you know, let's say before you decide that you need to, to covet, you know, something that your roommate has, you first believe that God is holding out on you. That God doesn't care about you, doesn't know that you really need it. And when you believe that about God, you've made him into an idol, into something less than he really is. Because the true God knows what you need. He's all wise. He loves you and cares about you. But when you begin to think, I need this thing, you understand you're saying something about God. You're expressing something about what you believe about God. And what you believe about God in that moment, and he's not who he really says he is. And as you begin to have real Christian community that really can help you, you have like a small group that's going to encourage you. It shouldn't just be a place where you come and be like, oh, I screwed up again. Okay, yeah, so did we. It should be a place where people begin to learn your story so that they can speak gospel truth in the particular places that you regularly forget the gospel. And the more specifically you know someone's story and that trail of pain, the more powerful real encouragement can be. And also, you yourself begin to get an insight into these are the passages I need to sit in. These are the kinds of truths I need to remember about the Bible. These are the hymns that I need to get on my heart to help me remember who God really is. And we'll talk about this more next week. But I, I think that's such an important thing. It transforms what Christian community is about. It transforms the idea of encouragement. It transforms the idea of worship. Because worship is basically getting the true story so embedded in our hearts that we can go out in the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. There's a famous story about this guy, Vassil Havel, who was the president of the Czech Republic. And um, he talks about how they overthrew communism there. And in Czechoslovakia, it's called the Velvet Revolution because it was really, um, you know, it was really without bloodshed. Okay? And um, actually, a guy named Hughes Alphon Old, a great um, professor of Reformed worship, um, knew the patriarch, you know, the Orthodox bishop there in Czechoslovakia, and he had preached a sermon uh, on Joshua and the Battle of Jericho and kind of marching around the walls, and the people got so fired up that they marched out of the church and camped around the president's mansion, and they wouldn't leave. And they just stayed, and they stayed, and finally he left. Well, Vassal Pavel was asked later on, what, what was going on there? How did that happen? And he said, you know, um, in Czechoslovakia, during the days of communism, we had kind of a parallel society. And he's a believer. And he's also a playwright. So he's an artist, a playwright, and eventually became the president. He said, in this parallel society, we told our stories and, and reminded ourselves of the truth to where it got into us so much that so that we could go out in the streets and say to the communists, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. And that's what I want you to think about when you think about worship. We gather together and worship so that we can get the truth into our hearts so we go out into the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that my value is based on what I can produce for this company. I don't believe that my value is based on how beautiful I am and how many dates I get. I don't believe that my value is based on you know this or that or how much pleasure I can get today. But you've got to be shaped and formed by a countercultural story 
so that you can go out in the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. This is the true, beautiful life here, the way it's laid out in God's Word. This is what I was made for. That's why James calls the law the perfect law of freedom. And tying it to one of the things that Ray said the other night, man, Isaiah 54, 5, to me, is one of the most important verses of the Bible. It says this, your maker is your husband. And I think most Christians have, have trouble holding those two ideas together. Some people think, yeah, I know God's my husband. He loves me passionately. But they don't really think he cares very much about how they live. But the one who made you is the one who said, this is how I made you to live, and he's the one who marries himself to you. So there are some people that are like, well, God says we should live this way, and we better do it, dang it. And they, they don't seem to believe that he's their husband. But your maker is your husband. If you want to understand Christianity, keep those two things together. Right? Well, our basic biggest problem is idolatry, but it's also, um, another way we could say it is worship is our problem, but worship is also where healing comes from. And I want to uh, tell you about this quote from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. I love this quote. He says that when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Listen, the the sins in your life are connected to places where you think God is hard and where God is a tyrant. And the way that healing is going to come is not by just saying, oh, I need to quit doing that, or I just need to feel differently. No, you need to worship the true God and get that on your heart. Our basic problem is idolatry, but our healing comes through idolatry, or sorry, through worship as well. And that is what we're going to look at in Isaiah 44. Okay, we got a couple more minutes for questions, right? Do we go to 11.30? Is that right? Yeah, so we got about five, six minutes. we got a couple more questions. Let me, let me tell you about this, actually. So this little chart from Tim Keller, identifying your idols, this is really helpful. I know it's really small font, but your eyes aren't as bad as mine, I'm sure. Um, here's, a, here's what he says. Go through and think about problem emotions. Emotions that seem like regularly to be problems, like out of proportion in your life, those are often keys to what true idols and worship is going on underneath. Um, use motivational drives to identify idols. Let me explain this one on B. He says, in other words, if you're seeking comfort... Because what, what he would argue, and, and a lot of people have said this, there are four kind of meta-idols, comfort, approval, control, and power. And then there's all these kind of secondary idols, power, approval, people-pleasing, image, helping, idolatry, all these kinds of things. The easiest ones to see are the secondary ones. I'm a people-pleaser. Yeah, but why are you a people-pleaser? Is it because you're seeking comfort? Are you seeking approval? Are you seeking control? Are you seeking power? Because people-pleasing can be used to get to those four, all four of those goals. And to really deal with idolatry in your heart, you have to think about what are the core, which of these four core things are really the one that's at work in my life. And those are the hard ones to get to. Um, So some of the things you can do, like if you're living for comfort, okay, then what you're willing to put up with is reduced productivity. That's the price you're willing to pay. Your greatest nightmare are stress and demands. 
Others around you often feel hurt. If your friends regularly say, you just don't seem to care about me, that means you're living for comfort, probably. Instead of just saying, well, I, I don't know why, that just seems unfair and unreasonable. If you regularly are hearing that from your friends, others feel that, that might be a clue as to what your true idol is. And the problem of emotion, boredom. The reason so many people are bored in our world today is because they're living for comfort and safety. And so you can go on through all the other ones. What about approval? If you're living for approval, you're willing to be less independent. You're, you're willing to link yourself to what other people want to do rather than what you want to do. Um, your greatest nightmare is to be rejected. Others around you often feel smothered. And your problem emotion, you're a coward. You find it hard to tell people what you really think. Right? So I think those are very helpful. And I encourage you not only to do this for yourself, but to get someone who knows you well to, to tell you what they think about this. I make people do this in premarital counseling all the time because I think it's really helpful. And then you can go through all these other ones down here, and then there's some diagnostic questions at the Bible, uh, at the bottom that I think will be proved very helpful. Now, um, I'm not going to sort of make you turn these in or anything. I just think this will be a helpful diagnostic for yourself. And um, so, anyway, any last questions? No? All right, we're going to talk about Isaiah 44 tomorrow. So look at this, and if you want to look at Isaiah 44, that's what we're going to be in tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow. Thanks for coming.